A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at uh1.com. Hello, welcome to Hollywood Crime Scene. This is Rachel Fisher. Hi, this is Desi Jedekin. Desi, I'm so excited for your episode tonight. Oh, because it's kind of a shock. Or a surprise. It's a surprise for me. What are we doing? Well, do we want to thank our patrons first? Because I think we have a backlog to get to. <laughs> I totally did not even well, have that open. We do have a patron, a Patreon, sorry. We do have a it Patreon. It is patreon.com slash Hollywood Crime Scene. You can uh, subscribe to it and you get additional content, including after shows, bonus episode. You will get access to our Discord um, there's also movie reviews, I'm sorry, movie recaps we have up there. Porn recaps. Porn recaps, after school special recaps, or not after school specials, very special episode recaps. Yeah. You know, where like Kirk Cameron did cocaine, Ugh, that kind of stuff. Classic. We need to get some more of those up because those were fun. I was just thinking there was a full house episode I want to recap with you. Okay. One and I have some done. little house ones. I want to do as well because there's an iconic little house on the prairie that we need to talk about. Wait, they did very special episodes. Um, I don't know if they were framed that way because this was more of a drama show. Yeah, but they had um, what would be in that vein where right. these were like, "Whoa, what the fuck was that?" Like a serious topic. Right. There's a one in particular I really want to talk about. Oh, good. Um, so yeah, there's a lot of stuff there. It's a really fun Discord. There's multiple groups in there. People talk about food. We have crafting. We talk about movies, books, all of that. So it's super fun. So So you should check it out. Yeah, the Discord is you get access to the Discord chat if you sign up for Patreon. So we have a lot of people who did just that. And we had... Kiki, Suzanne, Alex, Jackie, Ashley, Leah, Valerie, Holly, Ashley, Lolly, Kel, Laura, Molly, Caitlin, and Rachel. Thank you very much. Okay, Desi. Now, what are we doing this week? Well, this will be um, a two-parter. So we'll do part two when we get back after the Thanksgiving holiday. And we're going to be talking about the scandalous life of actress Joan Collins. Ugh. So she recently released a memoir um, called Behind the Shoulder Pads. Ugh. So we'll I have chills. we're going to be getting more into that book next week because it's sort of later. It's obviously focused on the dynasty years. And she's written like, I'm not kidding you, 10 memoirs. I know. So this today's uh, episode is pretty much from her first memoir called past imperfect. There are some updates to things she talks about in this improv, I'm sorry, in this memoir. So I've tried to update as um, I can because she kind of doesn't reveal things and then they come out in later memoirs. Um, And then, so I'm trying to update. Some of the memoirs are like out of print, so I couldn't get them all. Um, Obviously that would be a lot of money as well. I can't buy like 10 memoirs. So yeah. I'll I'll try to update, and if I find out new things and behind the shoulder pads, I'll give you guys updates there as well. When you said that her new memoir had just come out, I was like, 
Jesus Christ, like how many times has this woman wrote a memoir? And like she keeps coming out with things. I had no idea she had a new memoir. That's when I came up with this idea for this episode. I was like, oh, I saw it. I was like, that could be fun. Hell um, yeah. She's 90, by the way. I can't believe it. That's crazy. I'm so excited to hear this. I really don't know anything about her life. I didn't really know that much either. So let's get into it. Joan was born on May 23rd, 1933 in London to a dance teacher, and her father was a talent agent. He represented people like Shirley Bassey, The Beatles, and Tom Jones. Her father was Jewish, so she's half Jewish. I did not know that. I didn't either. Um, So they were thinking she was going to be a boy. She was going to be Joan Jr., but when she popped out, she was a girl, and they went with Joan. Why not Josephine? Just saying. Is, wait, Joan Jr.? Joe Jr. Oh, Joe Jr. Yeah. Her father's name was Joseph. Um, So Joan was theatrical from the start. She began dance lessons at the age of three, and she pretty much dreamed of being an actress from as far back as she can remember. Her mom was, I'm sorry, her grandma was a well-known can-can dancer, Ugh. and she kind of took inspiration from grandma. I love a can-can dancer. You, you don't hear about can-can dancers much anymore. No, that's like a lost art. So she was definitely daddy's little darling, but she was devastated when she felt like that honor was taken from her after her sister, Jackie, was born. Now, Jackie Collins is a very famous author. She wrote a lot of trashy novels that are incredible. Yeah. I read them as a kid. I was like a fan. Of course. Of course you were. I'm obsessed with like Jackie Collins novel covers, like the cover art. Oh, they were like a vibe. Yeah. You knew exactly what these books were. And um, they do have a very interesting relationship. They're obviously very close, but it was tumultuous too at times. So when Jackie was born, the dad definitely doted on her and Joan began to feel kind of abandoned. Um, Making this abandonment feel even worse was that the family left the dad behind um, in London during the war. So they were constantly moving around. He stayed in London and she really sort of developed a shyness at this point because she was constantly switching schools, stuff like that. She retreated further into her little fantasy world and, you know, the make-believe stuff, like being rich, being famous, being an actress. Um, she definitely felt like if daddy really loved her, he'd be with the family and not back in London. At age 13, she got new competition because they had a baby brother and this was like the boy. So everyone doted on him and Joan just felt even more sort of abandoned by her dad. She decided to try to be a tomboy and went to, um, football games with her. That's soccer. If you guys don't know. (laughs) Wait, okay, so, okay, well, what we call soccer. Yeah, that's what we call soccer, (laughs) football. Um, She also dreaded the idea of puberty and thought it was a curse, like she did not want to turn into a woman. Um, But she didn't like football, and so it kind of, you know, that sort of effort to win her dad back did not work. Uh, The baby brother, Bill, was still his favorite. Wait, did the dad really not like her, or was this in her head? I mean, yeah, this is her memoir, So it's all what's in her head, right? Yeah. I mean, I'm sure he was just typical old school dad, right? Where it's like, ooh, the boy, and probably didn't have a lot of time. So it was more like 
the time he had, he gave to one child maybe more yeah. than the others. I don't know. I'm sure he'd have a different opinion. So she, whatever, whatever the reasoning or however it really was, she felt very unloved and began stuffing her face, according to her, with um, sausage rolls and biscuits. Mm. I was like, I want a sausage roll. That's very British. That sounds yummy. I mean, I want it to be kind of spicy, though. Not like one of those white sausages. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? Um, she also became more than determined than ever to become an actress. She's like, that's one way to get the love I wanted from my dad. Um, common thing probably. Yeah. But there was another way she found out because when she turned 15, she began attending the Royal Academy of Dramatic Arts and she finally started getting attention from boys and she really felt love for the first time (laughs) from men or boys. Um, so classic daddy issues, she was like seeking the approval of these young men, boys, making them want her and then moving on to the next. She really liked difficult, unattentive and moody men How uh, original. throughout her life. <laughs> yes. So it was through Rada that she was discovered by a modeling agency and began to book small jobs for illustrations in women's magazines. Through her modeling, she caught the eye of a talent agent, but Joan was snobbish about film work. She wanted to be a theater actress. Unfortunately, at RADA, she was criticized um, all the time for her voice, which didn't project on stage. So she was eventually convinced to sign on and take film or TV work, uh, and she pretty much immediately began booking roles. Now, the British press also began to notice her and were calling her Baby Ava Gardner at the time. She, of course, didn't see it, but that pressure um, sort of really, she felt that pressure to sort of live up to that. And she says in her book, so began her um, mantra, life is a constant diet. <laughs> Sorry, it's such, a, it's such a dated mantra because this book, I think, came out in like the 80s, maybe. I don't yeah. know. Like, so... I was dying at some of this diet stuff because it's so crazy. Does she talk about like her dieting? Well, she says in her book that um, this was the start of hundreds of diets in her life that she goes on. um, And she's determined to um, fulfill fulfill this role as this burgeoning sex symbol. And part of that, in addition to dieting, was losing her virginity. Um, So she is now being cast, as I mentioned. She's getting a lot of juvenile delinquent roles, bad girls. And this leads to an audition with a big star at the time named Dirk Bogard. Um, This seems really sus because this audition wasn't really for a particular film role. It was just like an audition. Yeah. And she shows up. um, She has to put on a pink baby doll dress and slither around on satin sheets making out with Dirk Bogard. How old is she? She's not 18. She's like maybe 17. And who's casting? He's in his early 30s. But wait, this is so so messed up. Who's even cast? What is this for? Exactly. There's not really a point to it. It's like, oh, do you want to have an audition with Dirk Bogard? And it's like (laughs) not for a particular film. As far as I could tell, it was just kind of like a screen test maybe. Yeah. Um, So there's also um, a halt in her quest to losing her virginity because a friend of hers from uh, Rada gets pregnant and has a botched abortion. So she's now like, I cannot get pregnant. I don't want to go through that experience. And this coincides with her first 
sleazy producer casting couch encounter. I guess she didn't count the Dirk Bogard one. A producer on a film she was up for took her out to dinner and very quickly made advances, which she rejected and lost the part. She said she made a pact with herself to never sleep with anyone for a role, a pact that was um, constantly being tried. There's a lot of sleazy guys in Hollywood. I'm not going to lie. For sure. (laughs) So... For instance, years later at 20th Century Fox, a producer named Buddy Adler told her she could be the biggest star on the lot if she was nice to him. She played coy for a bit before saying to Buddy, well, perhaps we should discuss this deal with my agent. Yeah. And he immediately obviously shut down. He moved on to another starlet who quickly got many of the roles Joan was up to or up for. So back to 17-year-old Joan, she was um, continuing to work and model, eventually working with actor Lawrence Harvey, whom she fell madly in love with. You might know Lawrence from The Manchurian Candidate and Butterfield 8. He he worked a lot during that period. He's very handsome. Um, She was convinced he was the one she would lose her virginity to, but Lawrence only wanted to kind of have fun and go out and party with her. He never even tried to kiss her or her or have sex with her, which Joan was kind of like, what's going on? It was then that she found out Lawrence had a live-in partner. She found out when he brought her to a party at his house and she met his live-in lover, Hermione Balds- Badsley. Sorry. <laughs> I don't, I can't read it because it's, I copied it and it's printed in yellow. Um, a well-known character actress who seemed to know about Joan. Joan pointed out in the book that Hermione was not known for her looks. <gasps> so I did have to look her up. And she does seem just like a average, like you could picture her in a British movie. Like she's, she's that type. I mean, her name is Hermione. You get it. <laughs> she, wait, she's, she's not Joan Collins. She's not, she's like a character actress. She's like, whatever. Yeah. I mean, she's probably great. I have no idea. But Joan, Joan slighted her looks in the book. Well, maybe she's really good in bed. Well, maybe she um, has a great personality. I mean, Joan has a reason to not like her because when she entered the party, Hermione read her for Phil. <gasps> so in the book, she says, Hermione said, so this is the one you're seeing, Larry, is it? This is the new Jean Simmons. She gave me a sarcastic look up and down, not missing a detail of my less than expert outfit. Her red curls bobbing a cigarette hanging from her lips. Let me tell you something, my dear. Jean has absolutely nothing to worry about. You don't have her looks. You don't have her talent. And you certainly don't have half the overblown things the newspapers have been saying you have. Joan burst into tears and rushed to the front door. That's right. Leave. (gasps) No guts. That's the trouble with you young ones today. No guts at all. Well, now we know why this guy likes Hermione is because she's crazy. She's crazy. And And he's into that. Those people are fun and bad. Even if if they get a little troublesome outside of that. Even if she's a total bitch and what she said was totally uncalled for. Lawrence, Lawrence Harvey. Yeah. He's like, oh, I like the crazy redheads. Well, she's devastated, and Lawrence walks her out and gets her a cab and goes back inside. So he's not leaving Hermione. Um, she decided she had had it with men and decided to focus on her movie career. She was soon placed under contract with the J. Um, Arthur Rand organization, a prolific film producer in Britain. Many actors had made names for themselves being groomed into film stars here, including Honor Blackman, Petula Clark, and Maxwell Reed, Joan's childhood crush. 
When she met him, her goal of not being enamored with men was very short-lived because she was immediately on this guy. Luckily for Joan, Max seemed interested. She went to great lengths to not let him on to the fact that she was only 17 and a virgin. She didn't want this sophisticated 33-year-old man to bail on her. He did ask her out eventually, and Joan was thrilled. The night of their first date, she just basically chain-smoked Lucky Strikes and didn't eat until like that evening arrived. I miss Lucky Strikes. It's honestly the coolest cigarette. <laughs> like I just love the packaging and like it's very old school. They tasted so good. I love that toasty flavor. So Joan was shocked when Maxwell, instead of driving her to a restaurant, drove her back to his place. He said he was going to take a bath. And oh. offered her a whiskey and Coke while she waited as he bathed. I'm sorry. This, <laughs> this guy wasn't ready for their date. He's going to take a bath. Rachel, this is a bad guy. He is not a good guy. So she thought of her mother's warning that men only wanted one thing. And she also ta- recalled a conversation with her mother about the time she asked her what the word fuck meant. And her mother <gasps> reacted almost violently at the idea of the question, telling her to never say that filthy word again. So Maxwell gives Joan her drink and a book to look at while he's taking his bath. She opens the book, and it's a book of illustrations that showed people fucking. This guy's a freak. He is a freak. He's a bad guy. Joan said that she then blacked out, and when (gasps) she woke up, she was naked on bed with Maxwell, telling him she was about to throw up. He told her he'd get the bucket again. No. Yeah. She realized she had thrown up before without knowing, and she also um, realized she had been there for three hours with no memory of what happened, but she knew that she had, according to her, done it. Oh, no. So she then found her sweater and bra that were on the floor ripped. And Maxwell basically said to her, yeah, I gave you a Mickey Finn to make you feel more sexy. No. He drugged her. No. Yes. Now, if you don't know what a Mickey Finn is, it's basically a drugged drink. People used to use something called chloral hydrate um, to mix it in to alcohol. It's kind of like an old school roofie, basically, because it was really used a lot for sexual assault. Yeah. That was what people did back in the day. So obviously... Um, she felt degraded. He was like, he thought nothing had gone wrong. He's like, I can't believe you were a virgin. Did you like it? And she's like, I have zero memory. Uh, she was like, now I understand why my mom said fuck is a bad word. It's almost 2 a.m. at this point, and he gets her ready to go home because she's still living with her parents. So he drives her home. She has him drop her off, um, like a little bit down from where her house is so she can walk in. And then before she leaves, she agrees to see him again. When she walks in, her parents are obviously waiting up furious, asking her where she's been. She said in her book, I looked at the clock and for a one wild moment, I felt like shrieking at them. I've been drugged and raped and abused by a 33-year-old degenerate film star and I hated it. You were right, mom. It's horrible and violent. I'll never do it again, I promise. But she just went with, I stayed out too late at the pub. Um... And part of her still wanted to protect Maxwell. This she's is like so in that. Sad. I know she's in that phase with him. You know, um, she was worried if she told the truth, her parents wouldn't let them uh, let her see him again. And she said she took a bath and then went out for a walk, saying uh, to herself, "I had been raped once that evening, so the odds of it happening again on this walk, late night walk are slim." She began to worry about getting um, pregnant. 
Uh, So she really threw herself into work the next day, day to try to forget what had happened. That evening, Max called her at work and asked her out to dinner, and she accepted. She said she felt flattered he still wanted to see her after having his way with her. Besides, she began to reason a lot of it was her fault. She shouldn't date someone older or go to their apartment. She wanted a fresh start with him, um, so she decided to kind of forget what had happened and just start fresh. This is so... <clears throat> this is so triggering and like very like such a common response. Right. You kind of just move on and just act like it wasn't a big deal. I just mean specifically like yeah, like you you compartmentalize so hard that you pretend that either it didn't happen or that it did happen, but I set this ball rolling and it's okay. Like it, he was only of course he did it. Because I set it rolling, and you, yeah. and you think because you had a crush on this guy that like you just want it to work, right? Well, they began dating seriously, fall in love, and after a brief period of no sex, she kind of described it as him kind of like I'm going to wait now because oh. I don't want everything to be tied together. They started up again, and she said she described. Uh, it as sort of sex was a man's sport and a woman's chore. Like that's how it felt for her. Oh, girl! I know she would watch TV while he did what he wanted to her, and she she said, you know, the irony of being Britain's sexiest girl, but I was completely frigid. But Max was dark and moody, and he really started turning on Joan for anything that went wrong with him, including blaming her for the time he got a slip disc after fucking her. He blamed her for like hurting his back. Um, a lot of this uh, stemmed. His, a lot of his anger stemmed from the classic "star is born" syndrome. His career was kind of in a downspin, and hers was kind of getting hot. So a lot of anger came out from that as well. He became more and more interested in sadism during sex as well, and something that uh, Joan kind of put up with, but also hated. And she really had this mentality of a woman's lot is to suffer through this kind of um, sexual relationship which is really sad. Max asked for her hand in marriage and Joan said yes. Once that happened, he quickly began to illustrate to Joan his favorite saying, hate is akin to love. No. Like, do not marry someone no. who has this philosophy. No. It's so bad. So it was a lot of emotional abuse. He would constantly belittle Joan, telling her she was beautiful now but would be old and washed up by 23. And she... Went through with the marriage, um, marrying him one day after she turned 18. So she's still very young at this point. Of course, once they were married, his jealousy became even worse because now he's like, Joan, I own you. You're mine now. So uh, he was very controlling and jealous. She quickly begins to work to escape being around her husband, but she couldn't escape him completely. One night they go out dancing at some discotheque. And Max befriended a sheik at the club. He excitedly come o- came over to Joan and told her the sheik said that he would pay $10,000 for one night with Joan and he would even allow Max to watch. <gasps> and he was like thrilled about this. No. Joan, of course, was outraged. And then when she refused to do it, Max was pissed that she turned down this tax-free uh, money. He was like, you're a fool. This is ridiculous. Um, This guy's diabolical. He's awful. So she obviously leaves him at the club. And the good thing about this is it finally was the thing that made her realize this was over. She's like, I cannot do this anymore. And she went home to her parents. 
and basically started um, divorce proceedings. So it couldn't have been better timing as she was about to star in her first big international movie directed by Howard Hawks. It was a biblical epic named The Land of the Pharaohs, and she got the role of a scheming princess, Nelifer. Now, she also begins having a lighthearted, laugh-filled affair with um, a co-star in the movie, Sidney Chaplin, who was the son of Charlie. Now, unfortunately, the happiness that she found here coincided while filming in Italy. So she was eating a lot of fettuccine, Mm. according to Joan. Her and Sidney were going out and eating whatever, 10 course meals every night. And who wouldn't? It's Italy. Yeah. She gained eight pounds. And unfortunately, her director, Howard Hawks, is an asshole. So he was pissed about this weight gain. She said that she would lie to him, saying things like, he would say, what's going on? And she she would, you know, why are you getting so fat? Uh, And she said, all I've eaten for two days is three hard-boiled eggs. But that was a lie. She's like, I didn't tell him. I had eaten spaghetti bolognese and zabaglioni, Zabalioni uh, that she had consumed the night before. He told her to cut it down to two hard-boiled eggs, <gasps> saying that Princess Nellifer should not look as though she's four months pregnant. So he's an asshole. He just goes off on her about her weight nonstop on this set. It just sounds so horrible. Um, but uh, the film is a bomb. It doesn't go anywhere. But her performance is sort of um, eye-catching. And she impresses the people at 20th Century Fox, including Daryl Zanuck. And he signs her to a seven-year contract with 20th Century Fox. So she's off to her new life in Hollywood. And she very quickly gets sexually harassed by Daryl Zanuck, who she describes as, you know, a gross pig. (laughs) He's like a classic gross Hollywood executive. Yeah. And he puts the moves on her like immediately after she arrives in Hollywood. He tells her that he's better, bigger, and can go longer than anyone, (laughs) which is like such a red flag (laughs) in general. Like someone talking that way is just always the worst. Yeah. She just kind of avoided him, uh, according to her. So after she arrives in Hollywood, she lands a role opposite Betty Davis in The Virgin Queen. And Betty's another one she has to avoid, according to her. Betty had a tendency to lash out at pretty young actresses. And Joan was like the victim of Betty's wrath as well. All About Eve was a documentary. Yeah. (laughs) So, I mean, I think it's an honor to be berated by Betty Davis. Yeah. But probably doesn't feel great. So she quietly begins living with Sydney um, Chaplin as well, um, living in sin. So she's careful to avoid getting caught because she's still married technically. And she has that pesky moral clause that a lot of actors had to deal with back in those days. Um, Sydney is part of this Gene Kelly set, which includes Adolph Green, Betty Comden, Comden, uh, Stanley Donan, a lot of those type of people, very artistic, intelligent. Um, they're all much older than Joan, obviously, so she feels inferior being around all these people. And at one of the parties, she notices a shy blonde hiding in the corner. She wanders over and starts talking to the only person more shy than her, and she realizes it was Marilyn Monroe. They bond over being uh, Gemini's. Joan is very big into astrology, by the way. Really? Like, it is a major factor in her life. Like, she does things based on astrology. Wow. So they talk about being Gemini's, and Marilyn warns her about the men in Hollywood, saying they were nothing but, uh, women were nothing but meat for them to devour. 
And then uh, Marilyn left. Joan never saw her again in person, but they have one more connection. That's a connection to our show. Marilyn had turned down the role of Evelyn Nesbitt in The Girl on the Red Velvet Swing, and that role would go to Joan Collins. I think we talked about this briefly. Yeah, we did. So this was a great... This was a great thing for Joan. This was like a first big starring role. The studio made a huge push uh, as far as publicity went for this film. And she really felt like the studio was behind her and she was kind of on her way to being a bigger star. Um, Once again, here she's being cast a lot as the rebel, the swinger, the homewrecker, um, which according to Joan couldn't have been further from the truth. She is pretty square. She doesn't really do a lot. She doesn't really drink a lot. She doesn't really do drugs. Um, but she does fuck married men, so she, they got one thing right. <laughs> uh, but, you know, that's a reputation she would really have to contend with that she didn't like. Uh, the affair with Sydney reached an end, too, and just in time for Joan to pick up with a man named Arthur Lowe Jr. of the Lowe's Theater Company family. He was loaded, so she liked that. She was really running in big-time celebrity circles now with him, including becoming friendly with James Dean. Now... Once at a group dinner at Don the Beachcombers. Mm. By the way, their menu is incredible. It has like vintage maps of the South Seas. Yeah. They're really pretty. Um, there's like hula girls on them. They have that, the original like cocktail placemat that I love, the yes. vintage cocktail placemat with all the cocktails. And the food, the food looks pretty good. Have you ever seen the menu for this place? Impossibly, but it's very Polynesian. It has some Chinese type food elements, so it's kind of Asian island inspired. Um, it has things like shrimp Cantonese. It has shrimp chow done, which I don't know what that is. Fried wontons, um, that kind of stuff, it's which very, I like. It's very of that era. Yes. What years are we in the 50s right yes. now? Yes. Yeah, this is so, like Dawn the Beachcomber was like a classic Polynesian they place. They sell almond cookies and they have for dessert fresh Hawaiian sugar loaf with pineapple. I want some right now. I That's want, probably like a pineapple upside down cake type I deal. want Dawn the Beachcomber dinner right now. Ooh, Chinese fried rice with roast pork, water chestnuts. Oh. See, <laughs> they know how to do it. <laughs> yeah, this place looks like a place we would love to go to for sure. So it was at Don the Beachcombers that she um, was hanging with James Dean, and he asked who in the group wanted to go for a ride in his new silver Porsche. Oh, shit. Well, Joan volunteered. Arthur, who like was usually down with Joan and kind of let her do what she wanted to do, pulled her aside and said, don't drive with him. He drives like a maniac. And after four of those zombies or whatever the hell it was that he we've been drinking, it's too dangerous. So he was drunk as well. Yeah. Um, and Joan, of course, was like, don't be such a stick in the mud. Um, according to her, she gets in. He's accusing her of being chicken because uh, they're driving up to Oscar Levant's house, um, which Wait, is in the hills. Is, who is driving up? Jimmy. And she goes with him to the next place while he's drunk in his silver Porsche. So she ditches her boyfriend? Yeah. She ditches her boyfriend. He's being a stick in the mud. I don't think... I think it's a two-seater, that car. Yeah. So I don't think anyone else could have gone. Um, and he drives, like like Arthur said, like a maniac. Um, he tells her that these cars are fail safe, that you literally cannot crash them. 
Uh, he's speeding up the hill. He's passing cars. Um, he tells her that the Porsches are made like tanks. Um, and this is so fucked up. They get to the house and she's like, thanks a lot. But she has trembling legs. Like it was the scariest ride that she's ever experienced. She like immediately lights up a cigarette and get, gets into the house. And then uh, she says to somebody, he's going to kill himself one of these, these days if he continues to drive like that. And a couple months later, while she's on promotion for the Virgin Queen, she gets a phone call from Arthur to look at the New York Times. And the headline was that James Dean had died in an automobile accident in the silver Porsche that she was driving with him in. Uh, We've talked about this before, and he was obviously only 24. So in addition to that, while she's in New York, she also sees a headline one day that catches her eye on the Los Angeles time that an actor is suing her for 1000 I'm sorry, $1,250, $1,250 a month uh, spousal support. That's <gasps> Maxwell Reed. Ugh. He's now suing her uh, for, I guess, alimony or like whatever. Um, so that's obviously very stressful because this guy sucks ass. And why should he get her money? Um, she does eventually work at a deal giving him a lump sum of $4,250. But that's more than he should have gotten, in yeah. my opinion. This yeah. is bullshit. So that's cleared up. Joan um, is up in two movies next, Sea Wife with Richard Burton and Island in the Sun with James Mason, Joan Fontaine, Dorothy Dandridge, and Harry Belafonte. This is being filmed in Barbados and Granada and was apparently like a very fun, gorgeous uh, movie set. Joan is struck immediately by Harry Harry Belafonte. Like the moment she sees him, he's just like gorgeous, obviously. He's very handsome. He's very charming. And she's pretty much tongue-tied when he finally comes up to her and introduces himself. She says she felt a sexual chemistry like she had never felt before with him He was very confident and he knew the power he had over women. So Joan, Joan kind of wants to get away from him because he's married. So she's like, I can't control myself. Uh, He's too hot. Um, So she's like, I have to go to dinner and then I have a game of poker afterwards. So I need to get out of here. And he's like, ooh, you English ladies always love to play games. She's like, (laughs) (laughs) she's like, I got to stay away from this fucking guy. He's trouble. So uh, he says to her, I don't play games, but maybe another time. So he's super hot. What kind of games? Exactly. That's what we all want to know. What do you have in mind? With him? No, I just mean oh, I would well, say that, I game? would say that to him and be like, wait. She ran. She's scared. I'd be like, well, she's probably <laughs> only like 18 still, right? right? So you can't imagine. So they don't have any scenes together, so it's kind of easy to avoid him. Um, they do run into each other again at some point, and he's like, You've been avoiding me, Joan Collins. <laughs> like, <laughs> not the not the full name. Not the full name. Uh and so they're at a dinner party when he says that to her and she's like, look, you know, looking at him and then across from her is, you know, pig Daryl Zanuck, who's just like shoving food in his house and like no table manners. And she's like, ugh, he wants me, you know, it's like this, like obvious, like contrast. Um, so the sexual tension remains high between them, the whole shoot, but nothing ever happens. Um, before he leaves, he tells Joan he'll be at the Grove in April. Mm. That's what I thought was the Grove. <laughs> <laughs> it's the coconut grove. So she goes to see him when he performs. Obviously, it's like a great show. He's an incredible performer. She goes backstage with him um, 
and they have like a little uh, conversation. Um, by that point, her relationship with Arthur Lowe was all but platonic. So she's super horny because she's like, I guess sex is important to me. Yeah. So she's standing here with this guy who's super hot. Uh, and in her book, the first one, she says she went home and nothing happened. Oh, now, really? Later books, she does reveal that they had a passionate love affair for at least, you know, a few weeks while he was in town. He would come to her place and they would fuck. But he was married, as I mentioned before, so they, they did finally end the affair because I think he wasn't leaving his wife. It was just a fling for him. Yeah. But apparently they did have sex and did have a little thing. Now, after that, she was really done with Arthur because she got good dick. She's like, I'm done. <laughs> I'm done here. He said to her at some point that she was a fucking bore. And she said that she said back to him, and you're a boring fuck. Ooh. And that was how they ended it. So we'll take a break here and be back with more Joan Escavades. Life is full of awesome what ifs and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. Rakuten's Big Give Week is back with 15% cash back. It's a festival of savings with big cash back at hundreds of stores. Don't miss headliners like Canon, Fenty Beauty, and Dyson. I can't wait to shop for all of my summer fashion and beauty needs, and we'll definitely be checking out Ulta and Adidas. Rakuten really is the best way to shop. You can really save by stacking cash back on top of other deals. And during Big Give Week, the cash back is bigger than ever. It's the time to shop for everything you need for spring and summer, like clothing, outdoor gear, and travel. Membership is free, and it's all happening May 6th to May 13th. Join today for free and get an extra 10% cash back boost on top of Big Give Week cashback rates, go to Rakuten.com or download the Rakuten app today. That's R-A-K-U-T-E-N. Shoppers get it. Rakuten is the shopping platform to save while shopping. I'm the queen of starting a free trial offer and forgetting to cancel it, oftentimes being charged for months for something I'm not even using. If I asked you how many subscriptions you have, would you be able to list all of them and how much you're paying? If you would have asked me this question before I started using Rocket Money, I would have said yes, but let me tell you, I would have been so wrong. I can't believe how many I had and all the money I was wasting. With Rocket Money, I can see all of my subscriptions in one place, and if I see something I don't want, I can cancel it with a tap. I never have to get on the phone with customer service. They'll even try to get you a refund for the last couple of months of wasted money and negotiate to lower your bills for you by up to 20%. All you have to do is take a picture of your bill, and Rocket Money takes care of the rest. Rocket Money is a personal finance app that finds and cancels your unwanted subscriptions, monitors your spending, and helps lower your bills. Rocket Money has over 5 million users and has helped save its members an average of $720 a year with over 500 million in canceled subscriptions. It's definitely saved me money, and now I can use that money to waste on things I do want. So stop wasting money on things you don't use. Cancel your unwanted subscriptions by going to rocketmoney.com slash Hollywood Crime Scene. That's rocketmoney.com slash Hollywood Crime Scene. So after she ends things with Arthur Lowe Jr., she begins dating Conrad Hilton Jr. 
We've seen him around. He dates a lot of actresses. He really does. So he's also dating Natalie Wood at the same time as uh, Joan, so it's not too serious. He's like a troubled guy, and this affair ends uh, not long after it started. She says in her book that uh, Nikki, they call him Nikki, his name is Conrad, so Nikki Hilton died of a drug overdose a few years later. What? But I actually looked it up, and the official cause of death is heart attack due to alcoholism at the age of 42. And it made me wonder if there was, is she wrong or was there some weird cover up back in the day or what was going on there? Anyway, I feel like the Hiltons would be a good family to cover at some point because that would be like a month long episode. I mean, that's Conrad is Paris and Nikki's grandpa. I think so. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And they have a brother named Conrad too. Yeah. So maybe. Maybe he's like a fourth or whatever, right? Like maybe the dad was the third. If your name is Conrad, you come from a really rich family. Totally. They also have a baron. Oh, they do? Yeah, that's I think right. They have a brother named Baron. Baron's I know. a very rich if kid. You, if your name is Baron or Conrad, <laughs> your family is old money and they're like way too rich. Yeah. So then love struck for Joan once again. Of course, she had sworn off married men, but she fell for another married guy. This guy's name is George England. And at the time, he was married to actress Cloris Leachman. Now, she met George through that Gene Kelly set when she was with Sidney Chaplin. And they actually used to do couple things together. They were oh. like double date couples. So they she saw him from across the double date table yeah. and was like, mm. They were playing footsies under the table. So by all accounts, George was a real charmer. He's good looking. He's a dapper dresser. He's the whole deal. He can get pussy and he has no trouble slaying it. Like he wants it. So her astrology friend warned her against this relationship, of course. What's his sign? He's a cancer. And he's like, no, that's an absolute disaster. (laughs) He will get his claws into you and will dig in and never let go. And he's like, not only that, but Cloris will never let go of him. Like He'll never leave her. He'll just keep cheating. I like astrology, but obviously I've never given, given two shits about it because for some reason I always end up dating Pisces men. Right. I mean, I like I've said before, I find it interesting. I'm not going to live my life based on it. And if it predicts something or says something is true and it works out, it's interesting to me, but I don't necessarily think it means anything. But I don't know. Maybe. <laughs> uh, Joan is obviously smitten with this guy, despite the fact that he's a cancer. I mean, if you're going to believe in astrology, you have to follow it. You got Do you know what I mean? Well, yeah. I mean, I, I just would never like not date someone because of their sign. I agree, but I feel like this is a little hypocritical if you rely on astrology a lot and then you don't follow through on what they say. So she dates them anyway. Yeah. I just, I just, it's interesting to me when those people who are hardcore astrology people don't follow the rules. Yeah, because um, it's very possible for attraction to someone to transcend what's written in the stars. That's true. So they began using George's best friend, Marlon Brando, as her beard. So they'll mm. go hang out and she'll be like, I'm Marlon's date. That's a good one. I mean, but he's kind of an asshole. So it wasn't long before Joan finally realized George George had no plans of ending his marriage. Um, And the reason she finally realized that, Cloris was pregnant again. (gasps) So he's still banging his wife and knocking her up. 
She decides. How dare he? How dare you? How dare he knock up his wife? wife? You're going to give her the impression that you're staying. (laughs) (laughs) So she decides to flee to New York City because Zsa Zsa Gabor has a new man for her. Uh, She's going to hook her up with this guy who is the son of Dominican dictator Rafael Trujillo. Stop it. Yeah. Rafael Jr. His name is. What? (laughs) So she's like, he's not like his father. He's really nice. Uh, so she she goes and she hooks up with him. They like stay at the Plaza Hotel. He buys her like really expensive jewelry. Um, so it's kind of a fling. Um, they have a nice little fuck. And then Joan, you know, once again throws herself into work. When she's back in LA, um, George is like, I need to see you. We need to set up a meeting. He's like, good news. Cloris lost the baby. <laughs> What? Yeah. He's all jazzed because Cloris lost the baby. Oh, my God. And now they can get divorced again. So, Oh, my God. Joan is overjoyed that she's got George back, even though this is horrible. They keep things on the DL because they don't want Cloris to name Joan as the cause of the divorce. And they began double dating again with Marlon Brando, who is now having an affair with Rita Moreno at the time. That's hot. This is a horrible relationship, though. Oh, no. Yes. So I actually looked into this a bit because uh, after she messed up or she was, you know, said that about Conrad Hilton, she says something about Rita and I was like, I need to look that up. So according to Rita Moreno, this is a quote, he and I had a relationship for almost eight years. Ultimately, it was exciting to be with Marlon. It was so exciting. He was extraordinary in many ways, but he was a bad guy. He was a bad guy when it came to women. I was such a different person then that I had all the makings of a doormat. So when he lied, I would look at him and say, Marlon, look at me. And he'd just sort of grin, uh, that poop-eating grin. I would read him like a book, and that's why he loved me. But he still mistreated me in so many ways. I tried to end my life with pills in his house uh, because of the way he treated her. She had gotten so low. Um, and she's like looking back. It's like I don't even recognize that person, um, that Rita. And I really didn't seem to understand that at the time that this guy was wrong and I I was still a good person. Um, so she talked about it publicly, um, recently for the first time. So I, I definitely feel like we need to look into this. Her life might be really interesting too, to kind of explore but yeah, that's awful. Yeah, that's I mean, really we're obviously going to do a Brando extravaganza at some point because there's so many fucking stories there yeah. that are horrible. Um, but yeah. But for Joan, um, her love life now is going smashingly, according to her, uh, even though this guy is still married. And her career has a big uh, upgrade as well coming. She's being groomed by 20th Century Fox to play Cleopatra. <gasps> So she's instructed she's too curvy at 120 pounds. Stop it. So she's told to diet and exercise to be more appropriate as if Cleopatra isn't super curvy. I mean, come on. At 120 pounds? Yes. Yeah. She, she's not curvy. So she gets makeup tested. She gets costume tested. And she seems well on her way to landing the role. Now, obviously, things don't go her way because we all know Elizabeth Taylor eventually gets cast as uh, Cleopatra. And Jonah's really pissed at 20th Century Fox because she needs this. Taylor doesn't need this, right? She's already a huge star. Unfortunately, things with George also take a turn for the worse uh, because she catches him making out in a car with the wife of a famous TV Italian singer. Wait. Italian TV singer. Oh, I'm it? guessing it's Mario Lanza because he's kind of famous TV Italian singer. 
a TV singer. Yeah, he had like a TV show where he sang songs, like a <laughs> variety show. That, you know how they had those kind of shows in the 50s? Yeah, people just watch just like, anything. They just watch a guy in black and white singing. <laughs> They're like, wow, that's And they do little set pieces. <laughs> yes, yes. Uh, I think, so that's why I think it is, but for some reason she doesn't name him. So she calls the wife and she's like, you better lay off George or I'm going to tell your husband. <gasps> and that woman like panicked and had cried and broke up with George. But he's a cheater. Yeah. So not only is he not divorcing Cloris, in fact, they got back together. Wait, and so, sep- wait, wait. Let me keep this straight. Yeah. George is still married to Cloris. Yes. But he's also making out with this other broad. So he has multiple mistresses. So he he's gotten back together and separated with Cloris seven times in the year that he and Joan were together. Cloris cut it loose. Cloris, this guy's no good. She's like, I don't want him, but you're not going to have him. So I will suffer. <laughs> I will suffer. So she goes to La Scala one night to drown in her sorrow. She's lost this big role. She realizes George is not happening. And she sees a handsome young man staring at her from across the room. Her friends tell her that that young man is Shirley MacLaine's little brother, Warren something. So he's sitting with Henry Fonda's daughter, Jane, who was in town to film her first movie with Tony Perkins. Joan's friend tell her that the studio is working on her cheekbones because her face is very full. Wait. (laughs) Wait, whose cheekbones? Jane Jane Fonda. The studio's working on them? Yeah, they're upset because she's too full-faced. She's probably like 17. Yeah. I mean, I was loving these books where they like talk about famously gorgeous people yeah. needing work, like trying to fix them. And it's like, they're literally gorgeous. Yeah. Like, what are you trying to do? Like these things, Hollywood back then is so infuriating when you have to hear all these things that they made these people do. It's somehow like even more depraved than it is now. Yes. Yeah. It's obviously still bad, but yeah. Um. So she leaves there and when she arrives at the Chateau, I'm sorry, when she arrives home, she has six messages that she needs to call Warren at the Chateau Marmont. He has, um, he's dying to get together with her. This is just from spying her from across the restaurant at La Scala? Right. So she's probably like 22 and he's like 19. But he's like a legendary player. S- pussy slayer. Yeah, absolutely. So he asks her to go to dinner. She agrees. They have a great time at dinner and he's driving her home. The car ride home, she's like debating whether or not to invite him up for a nightcap. And as he pulls up to her place, he kind of makes a decision for her and says, I'm coming in for some coffee. (laughs) (laughs) And she's just like, okay. And after that, they're inseparable. Wow. They bang and have a great old time. So he really helps pull her out of that George rut and gets George out of her system good. Uh, And... It's 1961 now. They get a studio apartment together at the Chateau. And he basically fucks her senseless nonstop there. He wants to fuck her like five times a day. Like he is insatiable. So he's trying to get the lead role in um, Splendor in the Grass that stars Natalie Wood. That is the film that will make him famous. Have you seen that movie? A long time ago. It's so good. Um, she she becomes pregnant from all that fucking. Because like I said, he's banging her a lot. And this is obviously devastating because neither one of them are ready for a baby. And having a baby out of wedlock would ruin both of their careers. 
So they decide that they're going to go to New York because he's able to procure her a safe, illegal abortion yeah. somewhere. So, and he's he's there for her. He takes her there. They go together. He's helping her as she recovers from um, the abortion. But he does have to leave soon because, like I said, he does get this uh, lead role in Splendor in the Grass and has to go off and shoot. She's like, well, I need to um, discuss this relationship with my astrologer because now <gasps> I need to like come up for breath. What's, and now I can finally discuss this with my astrologer. What's Warren Beatty's sign? He's an Aries. Ooh. So I'm an Aries. He, she talks to the astrologer psychic friend and, and he's like, Warren is an Aries and he's ruled by the cock. Like you, this guy is a fuck machine. I thought that was he, the Scorpio. Well, I look, I'm just saying what the astrologer said. <laughs> Maybe he had some other things going on in there. Maybe it's a lot of Scorpio. He might have a Scorpio moon. So he said, also, this is Joan's memory, right? Like, who the hell knows? He's going to need multiple women to satiate his ego, and he's probably not going to marry until he's much, much older. He also tells Joan that, and this book, by the way, was written before he got married. She kind of nails it. Yeah, it's a guy. He kind of nails it. He also tells Joan that she was going to have a long career, but finally reap the rewards in her 40s. So she's really upset by this. Yeah. Because that, you know, if you can imagine hearing that in Hollywood, you're like, why would I not get it earlier? No one in their 40s is successful. Right. Or at at that age, for women especially. Right. So she's really upset by these revelations because it's like her, her dick is not going to be loyal. <laughs> her career seems like it's going to take a while. Um, an interesting thing about her friend, by the way, he's not a famous psychic at all. He Astrologist. Predict, astro, I'm sorry, astrology. But he's kind of a psychic too. He's an astrologer psychic. He's, <laughs> that's how she's describing him. Um, he predicted he would die on his 32nd birthday. So on that day, he stayed in his home and didn't leave the entire year of his 32nd year. And he ended up dying of malnutrition. Wait a minute. In his apartment. The astrologer predicted this about himself. Yes. He's, how old is this astrologer? Well, he's 32 when he dies. So he's young. So he predicted he was going to die and he like was worried something would fall on him or whatever. So he stayed in his home. And then he died at home. And he died at home of malnutrition. Now this is according to Joan. I actually tried to look it up because I was like, this was a crazy story. Like I want to know more about this. Well, you have to eat if you're staying at home. Well, apparently only he only ate pretzels and like a few other snack foods. Like I guess he didn't know how to cook and there was no delivery <laughs> back then. <laughs> this is out of control. And according to Joan, all of his prophecies for her will come true. So she initially thought otherwise, though, because Warren gave her a ring. So she's like, see, uh, you were wrong about Warren. He wants to marry me. And career-wise, things were starting to make a turnaround as well uh, in a roundabout way. Elizabeth Taylor needed to drop out of Cleopatra because she had a medical emergency. Now, this is a very famous... We got to do something on the filming of Cleopatra because it is a crazy uh, filming experience. Obviously, this is where Liz Taylor and Richard Burton meet and began their affair. But the first crazy thing that happened was Liz Taylor got double pneumonia right before filming started. Obviously, this is a massive uh, budget movie. So she fell into a coma at some point during her illness and had to have an emergency tracheotomy. You can actually see the scar in the um, movie. 
Um, so they were like, we can't wait around to see what happens with her to see if she pulls through. We need to start immediately uh, filming and recast her. Um, so they asked Joan, they're like, can you do it? <laughs> now, obviously it doesn't happen. Elizabeth Taylor makes a miraculous recovery. And this is an incident that really took her from this homewrecker, which she had already had a reputation for because she broke up the marriage of Eddie Fisher and um, Debbie Reynolds famously. Are, hold on. I'm confused. You're talking about Elizabeth Taylor? Yeah. Yeah. So this illness that she had turned her turned public opinion around on her because they're like, she's a brave survivor. Okay. So this was a real turning point for Elizabeth Taylor. Yes. So um, anyway... At, so at first, though, uh, Joan Collins was like, what should I do? Because yeah. it's kind of a weird way to get a role. Um, is it kind of ghoulish to even talk about taking this part on? And Warren Beatty convinces her to do it. But by the time she finally convinces, she's convinced to do it, Liz is better. So she doesn't get the chance anyhow. Um, so... Yeah, that was just kind of an interesting little uh, tidbit. Now, they're together for two years at this point, and Joan is finally deciding that she wants to end things with Warren. She realizes it's not going anywhere. She's kind of like, he's too young. Like, what am I doing? Um, So she takes a movie called The Road to Hong Kong. This is with Bing Crosby and Bob Hope, those famous road movies. She's in one of them. Their normal co-star, Dorothy L'Amour, isn't in this one for some reason. So they replace her with Joan Collins. Now, Warren is upset that she takes this movie. He's like, this movie is crap. He's <laughs> he's like a, a film snob because well, his first movie is like a very high artistic achievement. So he's like, why would you do anything like this piece of shit? Look, I got to agree with him. I mean, he's right. But she she doesn't care. Um, she when he asked her why she's taking the movie, she's like, it's simple. I want the money and I need it to get away from you. That's like she, fair. That's fair. That's fair. <laughs> she's trying to get away from him and she can't give up that D. So she needs to go to London <laughs> to film this movie and get away from it. I mean, it's, it's hard. It's hard out there. Uh, so <laughs> she goes off to London and then she immediately becomes irked because once she leaves, Warren immediately starts dating Natalie Wood. They're like public. So it's kind of like, wait, what was going on there? That must have been happening the whole time they were filming. Uh, Luckily, Joan finds a new love interest as well, a man named Anthony Newell. At the time, I'm sorry, Anthony Newley. At the time, he is most famous for playing the Artful Dodger and David Lean's Oliver Twist. But now he's a big stage star in London. And he has like a big sort of one-person show type deal going off in London. That's like the must-see performance. And Joan goes to see it, and she's just immediately in love with this guy. It wasn't long before she gets pregnant, and in 1963, she gives birth to their daughter, Tara. Uh, Six weeks later, after Tara is born, Kennedy is assassinated, and they're like, we got to get out of here, because they're in America, and they're like, let's go to Paris. Yeah. I love when rich people, they can just literally fly places when it gets too crazy. They're so... <laughs> Let's just get out of this country. Yeah. It's, it's like, like the leader's gotten killed. It's a mess. They're like, it's a little <laughs> stressful here. Let's so go to our villa. They go to Paris uh, and it's honestly, they didn't get away from the stress. One night they're in this hotel and they see smoke and they're hearing flame, hearing fire trucks and they see flames coming out of the window of their hotel. There's a huge fucking fire in the elevator shaft. 
and people are being evacuated. They're stuck inside their hotel room with a six-week-old baby. Oh, my God. Uh, They're looking outside. They're trying to get on the terrace, but there's no fire escapes in this old Parisian hotel. And she's like, we're going to die, and I'm going to die in a second-rate hotel in Paris. Why are they staying at a second-rate hotel? I don't know. It's probably still expensive. So she's like, shit. This is not, I don't want this to be my legacy. But luckily, firefighters finally show up to their door and rescue them. And they're like, we're out of here. Let's go to Switzerland. (laughs) (laughs) They just keep escaping the pain. In 1965, they have their second child, son, Alexander Sasha. Uh, He's born. So the family do move back to New York at this point because Tony is in demand. Uh, He is on Broadway. And Joan is now kind of, the star's wife. Like she's sort of his wife now. They make a plan to move back to Beverly Hills since Tony has a big role in the new uh, Dr. Doolittle movie. But Joan is, you know, she's happy being a wife and mother at this point. Uh, just as her psychic friend predicted, though, she's, she's a little worried about the marriage. He did say Joan would get married, but that they would be married for seven years. And right now she's in her fourth year of marriage. So she's like, oh shit, this is a ticking time bomb. Like what's going to happen? Because she's pretty happy right now. But the marriage does begin to deteriorate. And the last straw is when Joan agrees to star in Tony's weird autobiographical musical movie called can Hieronymus Merkin ever forget Mercy Hump and find true happiness? That is not the title. That is the title. That is she- <laughs> Desi. Stop. Stop. Wait till you hear the name of her character, though, Wait, Rachel. Say the name of this movie again. Can Hieronymus Merkin ever forget Mercy Hump and find true happiness? And this is her husband wrote this movie. Yes, and he stars in it. I hate this type of person. Yeah, they're annoying. Who's like, I'm going to have such an annoying title that's going to have everyone going, huh? And then they're going to ask me, what does it mean? And then I'm going to tell them for like 20 minutes. It's going to take me 20 minutes to explain what it means. And so he cast her. She agrees to star in it in a role. And her character's name is Polyester Poontang. I hate this. (laughs) Why, Desi? Why? Yeah. I mean, so she stars in this movie and she said that when she went to the screening, the first screening of the completed film, that was when she realized the marriage could never be saved (laughs) because that's how awful it was. I agree with her. If your husband casts you in a role, polyester poontang. Why would you take that? I would never. Wait, is this a comedy? I mean, I think it's absurd. That's his thing. He's kind of absurd. And like I don't like this intellectual. guy. I don't like this guy. He's a lot. Like I know exactly this type of person where they're absurd but intellectual. I don't but like they're that. actually deep down a raging narcissist and an asshole. But they're like, <laughs> and everyone loves them when they first meet them. But you're like, I know. Because, <laughs> Do you know what I mean? Because this is the kind of guy that's always on. Yes. You can never have a normal conversation with this guy. So... Now we're we're into the the early seventies or like the seventy nineteen seventy. She begins working again, primarily in television at this point. But she also has a mini reign as queen of British horror, starring in a, a few things, including one of my favorites, Tales from the Crypt. Yeah, absolutely love that anthology uh, horror movie. She's great in it. She's in the Santa Claus storyline. It's such a good one. I love that movie. So she also has a new guy, of course. His name is Ron Cass. He is a music 
biz manager, producer, like jack of all trade entertainment type guy. And when her divorce is final from Tony, she and Ron get married and she's soon pregnant with daughter Katiana. Now at this point, Joan is just doing TV work pretty much. Um, and she decides to get into producing. She's like, I'm going to produce my own star vehicle. She buys the rights to her um, sister's book called The Stud. Good for her. Uh, and she's like, I'm going to make a film adaptation adaptation of this. Now, if you don't know what The Stud's about, <laughs> Joan Collins plays um, Fontaine Khalid. She is the London wife of a wealthy Arab businessman. And she buys a nightclub called Hobo. And it's a hedonistic partying lifestyle. There are orgies there. There's a very famous orgy scene in this movie that Joan says she was drunk during because she couldn't get through it otherwise. Uh, She gets a young guy to help run her club. And obviously, um, he likes to satisfy her nymphomaniac demands. She's super horny. She needs a stud. (laughs) (laughs) She hires one. It's a... It's a crazy movie and could be a fun one for us to recap at some at some point because it is out there. It's a bad movie we love type thing. So it's a wild movie. It finally gets made and is a huge hit. She's soon setting up a sequel to the stud called The Bitch. Ugh. And Joan says in her book that this is the one thing she regrets, which I don't agree with her. She says... Um, She regrets the sort of sexist uh, language of the title. She's a little bit prim. And that the tagline for the bitch, um, which was Joan Collins, is the bitch. (laughs) That's a great. I know. That is a great title. It's always infuriating to me when people don't love something that is actually super cool. It's like, no, that is incredible, Joan. I, I mean, like that is the dream is to have this kind of Joan Collins. Yes. These succession of roles. Well, and she's like, that stayed with me for my the rest of my career. And it's like, who the hell cares? Um, it's obviously a much cheaper movie. Not that the first one was a big budget. Uh, but they both were big hits. They were panned by the critics, but they were um, successful. The critics were like, these are softcore porn, which I'm like, that's a selling point to me. I love softcore porn. <laughs> Those movies are the best. They're so good. They're so good. Um, so they really helped revive her career too. Um, and so, she's like in her thirties at this point. Yeah. So, or forties. No, she's, she's in her late thirties, I think 33. Yeah. 33. So 70, that would be four. Yeah. She, is she in her forties already? What year is it? Wait, it's in the seventies. Oh yeah. She is in her forties. She's in her forties. Yeah. Um, so things start going downhill though for Joan. Once again, she's having this movie success, but she has a an absolute tragedy happened in her family. Her daughter, Katiana, gets hit by a car <gasps> while out playing. She just kind of steps off the curb and a, a car like sideswipes her. She suffers a traumatic brain injury and is in a coma and almost dies. So Joan is obviously by her bed uh, and there's a long recovery process with something like that. Um, so she's not working. She's staying with her kid. Her husband is also out of work and the bills are really piling up. Joan then actually finally lands a role as Cleopatra when she's cast on an episode of Fantasy Island. Aaron Spelling was a fan of her work in The Stud and the Bitch, and he's like, oh, let's put her in Fantasy Island. Little did Joan know that Aaron had another part in mind for her as well. She said that while on vacation one day, she gets a phone call from her agent who says, Joan, have you ever heard of the TV show called Dynasty? 
She's like, no, what's Dynasty? He said, well, it's a series. Um, sort, It's sort of a soap opera, a bit like Dallas. She's like, no, I'm not interested. I don't want to move back to LA, um, et cetera. And he's like, you got to do it. You got to talk to Aaron. He loves you. And they've literally written this role for you with you in mind. So she tells her agent that she'll think about it. And she does think about it. But Aaron wanted her and he... What he wanted, he usually got. So we all know what happens. And Joan does take this role of Alexis um, Carrington, Alexis Colby Carrington eventually. But we'll get into more about that new trajectory in Joan's life next episode uh, because that gets juicy. Look, if Aaron Spelling called me, I wouldn't wouldn't even let him talk. I'd be like, yes. I mean, how do you not? He's revived so many actresses' careers, too, like giving them this role of a lifetime. Yeah. I mean, he did it with Heather Locklear as yeah. well. Yeah. Um, and he I, he, I love his casting. He's great at it. He's great at casting. He's obviously great at making a TV show. He knows what the people want. He does. Or he knew. He knew what the people wanted. <laughs> we wanted <laughs> trash and scandal. We want to see rich people fight, cat fight. Yeah. <laughs> like, so many of like... Just the best shows were Aaron Spelling Productions. Well, I'm really excited to talk about Dynasty. Me too. I also found a book that is just behind the scenes of Dynasty. So I'm hoping to get some other juicy stories uh, in that book as well, not just Joan's perspective, right. which I'm sure is skewed to benefit her, like we all would do in our memoirs. <laughs> but yeah, I'm excited to talk about, and the rest of Joan's life is pretty juicy too, because she gets really rich and famous again. Right. And with that always comes uh, a lot of bad... She gets married a bunch more. There's a lot. There's still a lot more to cover, so I'm excited. Well, Desi, that was a great episode. We will be doing an after show. And we'll post some good pics. And we'll post some good pictures. If you want to listen to the after show, patreon.com slash Hollywood Crime Scene. And we will be back for part two after the Thanksgiving break. Bye. Bye. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.